Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm Diana Baudet. Today's April 22nd, and I'll be speaking with our New York Barton Gilman education attorney, Paul O'Neill. Paul, thank you for joining me today. It's nice to talk to you after a couple of weeks. Well, thanks for having me back. Yeah, we have a few more weeks of roughly the same experience. Yeah. I'm sure, though, that in the past couple of weeks, things have changed. How are things going for schools, educators, students, and families? Are they the same? How are they different? Are people settling in? What is the pulse out there that you're seeing? Yeah, I think you you mentioned settling in. I think there is a lot of that. I think initially what we had was a kind of uh, shock and scramble to try and find a way to meet the rules that the government was imposing about distancing and about closing the physical plants of schools. And so there was a lot of attention to trying to find a way to be safe and to communicate that to the families and then to create some kind of system where the kids could be educated remotely, despite the fact that for the vast, vast majority of these schools, this was not ever their plan or their expertise. There there are schools that are intended to be either fully virtual or offer what we call blended learning, which is to say, um, you know, some portion of their program is taking place online, but the vast majority of schools were doing neither of those things. And so early on, they were trying to figure out how to do that. Now we've kind of settled in for the longer haul and folks are dealing with issues like continuity of what they've been offering and dealing with all sorts of considerations that I think we're going to talk about later about what do they do when they think about coming back. Yeah. So I don't know in terms of your area, and I know, I know everywhere across the country is handling it differently. State by state, we're hearing more and more of schools closing for the remainder of the year. And I'm assuming in most states that they've also been going through this phased virtual process, um, which initially started out with enrichment and then moved towards new learning. And now they're addressing how grading might work. How is it going in your area? Right. Well, I am in New Jersey, but most of the work that we do is with schools in New York. And in New York, I think that's exactly you know what we've seen. We've seen a shift to trying to actually educate kids as opposed to trying to get through what would have felt like a kind of a long vacation mm. at first. And, you know, everyone's trying to pay attention to the directives that are coming from the different governmental entities, the state and the city and the U.S. Department of Education, about what the deadlines look like. As of right now in New York, the governor has pushed back any opening date to the middle of May. So May 15th is currently what we're expecting. But, you know, in many places, schools have already been closed for the remainder of this school year. And I think to a certain extent, there's an expectation in New York that that's what's going to happen and that folks want to give this the old college try and not get out in front of it. But I think the preparations that people are making certainly seem to to encompass the idea that um, they're not coming back, mm-hmm. which raises a whole, whole host of other issues. Right, right. And that's what you want to talk about today, correct? That is. I want to talk about how school boards in particular, you know, and most specifically New York charter school boards, can do what they need to do, can learn what they need to learn in order to help their schools be strong 
despite the fact that we don't know when we're coming back. And one thing that has become clearer and clearer is that nobody can tell the future here. And it's certainly possible. I read in the paper this morning that Georgia and Tennessee are opening up for business again in a couple of days. Mm -hmm. You know, that's despite the fact that there's no treatments in place and there's no way to prevent people from getting this if they get it. And so, I mean, that's just one more indication that we're like to be, we're likely to be on a little bit of a uh, roller coaster up and down with this. And, and if, if schools are going to handle that and be able to still serve the families that they serve, they need to have a plan that, that is nuanced enough to take account of the very messy reality and not just a sort of hopeful best case scenario. Yeah. Do you, maybe the best way to start that conversation then is just to give us a quick overview of, to this time, how have charter schools in New York been impacted? And is it across the board? Is everybody equally impacted? I guess that's an interesting question. In some respects, they're all equally impacted in the sense that they're all told they can't open right now. Mm -hmm. But there are schools that have more experience with being virtual and providing services that way. There are schools that work with management organizations that essentially coordinate a whole network of schools. And those tend to have more staffing, deeper pockets, maybe more of an ability to step back from the day-to-day and figure out the, the planning. So I think that's been an issue. You know, do they have the ability to step back and do that? But, you know, all the schools are dealing with, you know, now that we are... I don't know how far into this, more than a month, figuring out what the weak points are and what they've already been delivering. You know, like, did the computer work the way they were supposed to? Has the instruction been weaker than they expected? And in in what ways? Has service provision in one way or another not been possible as they expected? But, you know, there are also these sort of softer considerations that are not hardware or instruction-based. And among those, I would include dealing with anxiety, and managing anxiety among everybody in the building and everybody who's sort of part of the school community, including the, you know, the teachers and the, and the administration, and then also dealing with trauma. I have talked to a fair amount of school directors who are talking about the incredible impact of the trauma that they're seeing. And, and that's partly because of the anxiety I'm talking about before and the sort of baseline anxiety about being in the situation. But it's also because people are dying. And it's just heartbreaking. You talk to school directors and they say, like, we've had five or six kids' parents die. I had one where both parents have died. And, you know, just trying to grapple with that and the loss and the disconnectedness when they're dealing with that loss. We're not just trying to keep these places in existence. We're trying to teach kids through them, right, Mm -hmm. and to minimize the disruption to the actual academic learning element. I mean, are they learning what they're doing despite all of this trauma and all of this chaos? It's tremendously hard. I would imagine being in New York and that being really the epicenter for the U.S., it's interesting that what you're saying, I don't feel like we're hearing a whole lot of in the mainstream media. They're so focused on totals for numbers. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't think I've encountered anything. And I don't know why that is. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's fairly, I mean, certainly whether a particular community has had death yet is a, you know, going to vary a fair amount. But I haven't talked to anybody that hasn't had any of it. And it really hasn't been something that focused. But, you know, your point, I think, is a, it could be taken more broadly, which is that 
I don't think that the reality of the learning environment and what has to happen to protect it has been part of the media really at all. And I think it's not necessarily been part of the thinking of every school. And, and again, this particular session today is focused on governance and what does the board do to make sure that the folks are thinking through issues like this. So what do we do to deal with trauma? Yeah. What do we do to deal with the lack of continuity in what kids are actually learning? What are we going to do at the end of the line when they haven't learned what we taught them for three months? You know, like this, these are all issues that I think are really not the focus of, of what I'm hearing. Right, right. Can you tell me, and I'm sure there are others out there that are going to listen to this that are also unsure, what is the board's role? I'm not entirely sure what their responsibilities are. Yeah, well, for a charter school, the board takes the place of what would be the board of education in in a town, in a, in a district, but it's more focused. Charter school is usually a smaller environment, and there's one or, in some cases, additional campuses, but the board is supposed to be especially in New York, where this is explicit, be the entity that basically holds the charter and is responsible for the school meeting its mission and for being academically successful and for being financially solvent and operationally prudent. All these things ultimately fall to the board, even though the board is not the entity that's on the ground day-to-day making decisions and teaching kids. Mm -hmm. And so it's always a tricky thing to find the line between what their role is and what the day-to-day role is and, and not to substitute their judgment for that of the school leadership. But, you know, at a time of crisis, boards have got to be meeting, they have got to be gathering information and making smart decisions. You know, I talk to plenty of boards who are doing that, but it's also strangely quiet from a lot of the schools that we normally help not hearing from those boards, and I think that there's a real mix in how attentive different school boards are being. Okay. So what would you recommend? How should school boards and school leaders be working together through a crisis like this? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. One is that they need to be gathered. They have to have a mechanism for gathering information. Mm -hmm. Information changes constantly. I mean, this is one thing that I didn't realize when, when we first started shutting down. I didn't realize how frequently I would have to be on top of the changes coming from all the different governmental entities, the authorizers and the state and the U.S. Department of Education, all of this stuff. As everybody grapples with what's going on and what's changing, it's a lot of info to, to maintain. And so the board has got to find a mechanism for that. How are they getting that info? Is there somebody on the board that's gathering it? Have they delegated that responsibility to a staff member at the school? Are they looking to their council to do that? But they have to be getting that info and they have to be getting it on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. And then I think the role of the board, you know, as they continue to have that finger on the pulse of what's going on, they have got to get organized in their thinking. They have to plan. And that's really been the focus of a lot of my work over the last couple of weeks, which is to say, trying to think through how boards can utilize some kind of rubric, some kind of decision-making process to take the information that they have and apply it. Mm-hmm. You know, what would that look like? What would that rubric look like? Have you thought of that yet? Or is that kind of an evolving process as you deal with clients and understand what the challenges are? Well, I have actually been been drafting something. I'll describe it. But I think that the board has got to 
organize its thinking around what I would call a couple of important buckets of tasks and considerations. And I would just, off the top of my head, I would say that's governance, instruction, operations, finance, and then outreach and support okay. to the school community. And yeah. we can talk about each of those, maybe take, okay. them in, take them in turn. So the way that I've been approaching this, and I think that the way it might be useful to approach it, given the uncertainty about when life goes back to normal, is to break down the planning process into considering three different time frames. The first is the immediate term, now. What are we doing now? What should mm-hmm. we be doing now? The second is the longer term. So everything between now and when we reopen and things are relatively normal. The kids are in the school together. The teachers are all there. We have resumed the program uh, in a traditional sort of way. And then beyond that is the third one, which is reopening. You know, we're, okay, how do we operate going forward now that we have, you know, opened the doors, but Mm -hmm. we're still living in this world? And so those, I think, are the three time frames. And so any of those considerations that you consider, I think, need to be projected across those time frames. So I'll give you one example. Let's say cleaning supplies, right? Maybe you need to be making contracts now with vendors who can provide the kind of materials and gloves and masks and sanitizers and all the sorts of things that you're going to need later on. But they're not just going to materialize out of nothing when you need them. You're going to have to first work on identifying vendors, try not to pay through the nose because, you know, right now those are at a premium. How are you going to ensure that you have an ongoing source for that? What's your backup if that place doesn't work? And and by the way, just to make this Rubik's Cube here even harder, at any point, anybody could get sick, right? So, you know, as you say, well, the board's going to meet. Well, what happens if three of the board members are sick? And what happens if the folks that you arranged with for the cleaning supplies somehow go out of business or where those folks get sick? Like, so, so there's like contingencies on contingencies, and it just takes careful forethought to say, okay, we've identified these elements, we're addressing them, and we've got some backup plans. I just want to ask you a quick question before you drill down on each one of these. Going back to the three yeah. phases, first, second, and third the second and third to me sounded similar in that they were opening. And I'm wondering, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with this, but would phase two actually be more like a soft opening where not everybody is back, but lockdowns are lifted and it's more of a a phase in, similar to what you're seeing in Denmark, where not all the students are coming back. You know, things are in limited numbers to accommodate for distancing. Do you see that being a possibility in the U.S. and in New York? Or do you think it's kind of once they lift and say schools are open, it is truly going to go back to the way it was? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that it would be magical thinking for us to convince ourselves that some morning, some Monday morning, anytime soon, people are going to say, okay, go back. Everybody, we're going to turn back on all the subways and we're going we're gonna to send everybody back to the classrooms where they were before and we're going to have everybody talk about, what did you do during the COVID break? You know, like, that's not going to be next. What's going to be next is some really messy combination of efforts 
to restart the schools as, as, as we're also trying to restart the economy. But, you know, I started to make a list of the different ways that you could have half measures, and it mm-hmm. gets very long. You know, whether okay. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. I mean, the Denmark thing is a, is a good example. They're trying to find ways to distance. I feel like I, I invented a term of mm. functional distancing. Rather than saying, you know, we're just social distancing or we're just completely staying away from each other. How do yeah. we function that way? And maybe we have half of the kids in the classroom at any one time. Maybe we have split sessions in the morning and in the afternoon. Maybe a school that doesn't have much uh, breathing room in there that has really narrow hallways and small rooms. Maybe they go find a convention center and have classes there. There's just so many different ways that you could picture doing it. Maybe some of the kids stay online and some of the kids don't. You know, all kinds of different ways. Maybe we need to spend the summer reconfiguring, like literally bring in the the hammers and the drills and change how the classrooms are set up, you know, so that we can Mm -hmm. distance while we learn. I mean, all of that, in my mind, is that sort of extended middle box. Because when you get back to saying, okay, we're back to normal, I mean, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but I certainly don't think we're going to be back to normal this calendar year. I think we're going to be dealing with ups and downs and craziness. That's that includes closing and reopening in some places when there's a spike, you know, by by school, by city, by state. Okay, all right, that's helpful. Thank you. I just wanted to go back to what those phases looked like. I was unclear. So, do you want to dig in yep. and talk about how governance issues would work? For example, yeah. Let's, okay. Let's let's talk about that. So, governance obviously requires knowledge. And it requires decision-making. And how do you make decisions if you can't get together? You have bylaws. All the charter school boards have bylaws, and those are their operating manuals. This is how we do it. We don't do it any other way, right? Well, they don't account for a situation like this. I'm pretty comfortable to say that. I don't think there's anybody out there who has provisions about when you can't physically get next to each other and what do you do when there's a possibility that somebody who's got authority under the bylaws suddenly gets sick or worse and can't function. So I think it is a wise thing to revise the bylaws now so that it allows certain flexibilities that are not there yet in your bylaws. And I've written up some language about that, and I can provide that to people. I've created what I'm calling Addendum A to, um, to anybody's bylaws that basically adds three provisions um, allowing, A, everybody to meet remotely and do what they have to mm-hmm. do through remote means. B, I think we need to have a provision that assigns to somebody or somebody, maybe in succession, the authority to take action for the board in circumstances where immediate action is needed and where it would be impracticable to call a, a meeting, even if it were even if it were a virtual meeting, sometimes somebody's mm-hmm. got to decide stuff. And if your bylaws don't allow for that, then your board can modify the bylaws and in practice it could make whatever designation it needs to make of authority necessary. So if you do that, you may also want to have a provision that says that in retrospect, the full board will either ratify the decisions that were made under those circumstances by that one individual or somehow distance himself from it, disavow it, you know, if, if that didn't prove necessary. That's actually the concept of martial law, that you 
in an emergency, you do whatever's considered necessary at the time, and then you're held accountable later for okay. whether you got that right or not. So that's the so that those are the first two boxes, and then the third is just saying that if folks are incapacitated or otherwise unable or unwilling to perform their duties as board members during this time, that you would want to reserve the right to just continue going with okay. the board members that you have. And so that's going to change the number of board members effectively, and it may lead to you being below minimums of what you're normally working with as established in the bylaws, and possibly by law. But I think you can't get in a circumstance where you can't function and you can't vote. And since you can't predict who's going to have those problems, I think it definitely makes sense yeah. to try and reserve those. Rights. So, so I think all of those things are important for, for boards to do in their bylaws. Beyond that, I think that this notion of using some sort of a rubric, working together with the school leaders to go through a planning process, you're going to have to do it remotely because there's no time we're all going to be sitting in a room together, but to go through this process and map it out and figure out exactly what are all these other factors, you know, in the, in the other categories that I mentioned before, like what are all the factors here that need to be dealt with and, and make the decisions that are necessary. Okay. And by that, you mean the instructional, operational, financial, and outreach? Yeah, yeah, those other boxes, yeah. Would you recommend if a board revises its bylaws and designates sort of that person that's going to make an emergency decision, should the board also come up with a backup for that person and a backup for that person in case of illness? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is wise to have a mechanism for handling that. It may be that the board has to identify it up front, or maybe they can reserve the right to do something to identify somebody if uh, if circumstance presents itself where that person can't do it. It may be, I mean, there, especially if you follow the first provision that I, that I mentioned about meeting remotely and continuing the work of mm-hmm. the board remotely, you should be able to convene a meeting and make an adjustment to who is delegated that authority. But you could also follow it, you know, along the lines of the, the officers of the board. You could say, well, the mm-hmm. first person is going to be the president and the president can't yeah, do it, yeah. the vice president, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, and do you want to go through and talk about some other buckets? Yeah, let me let me quickly talk about let me quickly talk about a couple of those things. You know, instruction is obviously what mm-hmm. the school is there to do. Um, everybody is trying to make sure that the kids keep learning and have the opportunity to do that. Um, as I mentioned before, we're using all kinds of processes that maybe people are mm-hmm. pretty unfamiliar with. And so that creates um, a real challenge in making that work. And I think there has to be a lot of planning about whether this is, whether the mechanisms that were used in a panic on day one are the mechanisms that are successful and that we want to keep using as we go forward into medium time. And, you know, a lot of other elements to that, are you being able to assess effectiveness Mm -hmm. of your program? Are you making adjustments to that? Is there professional development that needs to be happening for teachers who are teaching in a, in a way yeah. that they're not used to teaching? I mean, it's a big switch from the, we're going to go over the information that we covered the month before the virus kicked in to saying we're going to be effective in doing this um, going forward as we are measuring whether, uh, you know, the seventh graders mastered yeah. the seventh grade content and then making a decision 
obviously, about whether we're yeah. putting them into eighth grade. What are we doing about that? I mean, uh, having, having conversations and careful thinking about assessing kids and when we're going to assess them and their, and their mastery and whether we're going to hold them back or whether we're going to give everybody a pass-fail for this semester or whether we're going to make a decision kid by kid. You know, is, it, is this child ready to go forward with supports? Or is this child just simply not going to be ready to go forward? And what are we doing about internal testing? State testing mm-hmm. has been suspended for for this co- current year, but you know, as I said before, this may not be over in this this current year. So, trying to look ahead and see what we're doing in all those areas mm-hmm. is important. And that, honestly, yeah. that just scratches. Yeah. And I would think, along with instructional, when I think of you know the kids that are doing pass bail, and therefore I think the idea is that they are really going to progress. You think of the elementary schoolers that are heading to junior high and the junior high kids that are heading to high school, that transition, I I think it would just be, it's going to be challenging as it is closing out this year, not being in the classroom with friends, but also starting a new year in a new school, potentially in a virtual setting. It has all kinds of issues that could crop up. Absolutely. And that that may be a quasi-virtual setting. And it may be a setting that changes dramatically depending mm-hmm. on health issues and financial issues, uh, resource yeah. issues, and all kinds of things. If we switch to mm-hmm. operations issues, we get to the biggest box. So much falls under operations in a school. And when we talk about the function of a school, and not just what happens in the classroom, but the broader functioning of a school, an awful lot of considerations that are impacted by the virus pop up. And I'll just, I'm looking now at this draft rubric of mine, and I'll just run through the categories. Human resources yeah. and staffing, all kinds of issues about making sure that you're dealing with interruptions in your staff. I mean, people get sick. People are not available. What about getting people to school? This is an issue uh, that came up with a school yesterday. They said we're, our biggest fear about, about endeavoring to do some level of reopening is that we won't be able to get our, our teachers to the school because the yeah. mass transit's been cut way back and because people are terrified of coming to the school. So you may have people who just quit yeah. rather than get on the subway. And, you know, that's, that's a real thing. So, so human resources, staffing, and other things, facilities, we talked about that before. What are you going to do? How are you going to do social distancing? How are you going to reconfigure the place or, or, or schedule alternative locations? Or what about if you're using a building that houses more than just your school? And in New York City, we have a lot of charter schools that are co-located with public mm-hmm. schools from the district. And you don't control that space. Right? So how do you deal with that? And there are charter schools that are located in commercial space that they don't fully control. So they're going to have to deal with all ranges, a whole range of issues relating to that. What about for charter schools where we're dealing with accountability issues? Charter schools are held accountable to meeting a set of accountability goals that are established in their charter with their authorizer. Yeah. What happens with that? We're not doing state testing this year. So, you know, you only have X number of years with your charter. If you're going to be judged, what happens there? You're going to have to start working out with your authorizer. What are the metrics that they're going to be held to? Are you going to get more time added to the end of your charter? Or they're going to soften the standards? Again, boards can't make this happen, but boards can engage mm-hmm. together with their leadership with the authorizers to figure that out. Then we got technology. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How many things can we think of for technology? Do we have enough hardware 
for a remote operation, computers and, and iPads and hotspots and software? What about the technology for the kids with disabilities who need to access the program? Then you've got issues about bandwidth for the website. I mean, is there a way that if you're using your website as a key feature of what you're doing right now, is that sustainable? Can everybody access it even if they have poor internet? And when you think about, you know, sustaining this whole project that you've just undertaken, can do you have backup systems for this? Do you have adequate yeah. tech support for all of the technology-related things that you're doing? I mentioned kids with disabilities before. Are they really able to access what they need to access? Yeah. What, what are we doing about all that? Vendor contracts. And that's another operations area. Do you have vendor agreements for all the different needs that you have both now in this remote environment, and do you have? Are you ready for it when you come back or quasi come back? Do you need to find some backup vendors? You need to enter into revisions to the contracts that you mm-hmm. already have with those folks. And what about admissions? It just so happens, a complete fluke that the um, that the virus hit just as charter schools in New York and elsewhere were finishing up their admissions process for next year. Yeah, and holding their lotteries, supposed to hold their lotteries in April, you know? Well, they didn't get a chance yeah. to finish marketing to those families and to do outreach and that sort of thing. Does that mean that they're going to have fewer kids? Because that becomes a not just a, a pedagogical problem, but a financial problem. Because in a charter school, the enrollment mm-hmm. drives the money. Because each kid brings, uh, you know, a, an amount of money from public funds. And if they were to, you know, walk into the regular district school, that money would go to the regular district school. And if they walk into the charter school, that money goes to the charter school. So what if they don't go to the charter school? And how do we deal with all kinds of issues related to that? Student discipline is one that my colleague Jamie Farnan did a podcast on a little while ago and is an issue that I think Mm -hmm. got zero attention as things got started here. But, you know, when you're endeavoring to go month after month of remote instruction, Raising the prospect of things like cyberbullying, yeah. and plagiarism, and cheating, all of which would violate the school's rules, and all of which can happen at least as much on the virtual side as they would if you were in the classroom. You know, like right. how are you dealing with those things? And you need a plan for that. And you can't, I mean, if kids are being cyberbullied in real time right now, you can't just yeah. say, well, we'll deal with it later. Well, some of the punishment may come later, but yeah. you've got to dive into them. Student transportation. What about that? Is the subway working? Are the buses going? Are there alternative options that we can consider that are not currently being considered? What happens in the short term and in the longer term? And then, of course, it's a heartbreaking one. What about graduation? Are we canceling everybody's graduation? Are we postponing it? I have a child who's a senior in high school, and he is more anxious about this than almost anything else. I'm like, am I never going to see these kids again? Am I not going to graduate? What's going to happen with that? And if they hold the graduation in October because they want to get together when it's possible to get together, are those kids all going to be off at college and nobody's going to be able to get it? You know, so, so but, but you got to figure it out. One very important yeah. one is cleaning and safety. You know, we talked about this a little bit before, sanitizing the facility, arranging for ongoing cleanings and contracting with folks creating a pipeline for all that stuff, uh, all, the, all the materials that you need. And what about health-related testing? You know, are, are we going to, uh, as the CDC is suggesting and for, for essential workers, are we going to mm-hmm. take everybody's temperature outside in front of the school yeah. every morning? Are we going to see that as a measure? Are we going to have the ability to actually test folks for the virus? 
are we going to have protective gear and, and infection control practices in place that, you know, shut it down as fast as we can if somebody turns out to be somebody who has who has the virus. So all, all of those are important. So, yeah, so that's an exhaustive list on my operations side. And then all, all of those things, everything you're saying to me just points to finances because yeah. all of those measures would require you know, an increase in finances, I would think. You know, you mentioned technology and IT issues. Uh, If we're going to be virtual more consistently, I would think a lot of schools would want sort of a help desk for families as well as staff to be able to call. You mentioned all the testing and the cleaning and all of that would cost more money than schools are used to spending. It does, and you've actually hit on two different areas at once there. Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) No, that's good. It shows you how it's a little artificial to break these things out, right? You break them out because we have to be able to sort it through and think about it in a a productive way. But outreach and support, having answers for parents about all these concerns and issues is crucial. And, of course, you you raise the financial concern. And, you know, one of the biggest ones there is what's the funding for the school? Is it, is it in jeopardy? And in New York, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of movement lately uh, raising concerns with the charter schools that they're going to have less money than they did before. Not only the limitation on the money, though, we're also concerned about delays in the receipt of the money, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. charter schools and lots of other schools get their money in increments. And if those increments are held up by processes that are impacted by the virus, then you may have a cash flow problem. All kinds of different issues related to that. Um, it may be, it's, it, it's possible that you may have access to some additional funds that you didn't have before. I know some schools and networks that have been raising money for, you know, to protect their program that have been somewhat successful at least in bringing in some money to replace what is likely to be a financial hit from lower enrollment and possibly from reduced per pupil funding. Um, when you think about those finances, you then think, well, all right, well, how can we cut costs? And so that's a factor for boards and leaders going through this process. Like, how can we make ourselves uh, in more of a safe position with this? And do we also want to create an austerity budget? And I think that's really important to think about because I've said numerous times on this podcast, I can't tell you what's going on tomorrow or who's going to get sick or what's going to happen or, or, or whether the funding is going to disappear more than it, than it has so far. So I think you have to come up with some kind of doomsday budget that says, all right, assuming the worst, this is how we think we can function. And, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully you don't, you don't have to use that budget. But financial planning is, is crucial and making sure that you have a plan for this year and next year and a five-year plan. Not, all of those, I think, are important. And then that also takes us back to the kind of thinking that I mentioned before with the board bylaws and creating more flexibility and who would do what on a board not knowing if you can meet or if people get sick. And, you know, there are only limited signatories that are allowed under the financial practices of, of prudent schools. You know, it can have to be that this person, you know, the treasurer has to sign along with the school director if it's announced over $10,000 or whatever it may be. You may have to revise those policies so that you have more flexibility because what if the secretary or the treasurer or whoever it is isn't available, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you got to give some thought to that, and those kinds of things go into the financial element here. Okay. 
When do you think you'll have your rubric ready? Because I would imagine anyone listening to this is thinking, oh boy, (laughs) I need some help figuring out how to think through all of this. Is that something you're going to be able to provide? And we can put that on our website and share that with folks? Yeah, absolutely. I will admit that I am not the world's greatest tech guy. And so I'm getting some help from someone who's much better than I am at creating a complicated spreadsheet. I would imagine that in a week or so, two weeks at the outside, I should have this thing done in a format that schools can use and we will put it on the website and hopefully we'll promote it and, and let people know. The, the goal is to create a template that that is already filled in with all the sorts of issues that I can think of. But mm-hmm. the reality is that I'm not thinking of everything, and there will be plenty of specialized things that a particular school is going to want to track. And so the form will be downloadable so that you can then adapt it to what your circumstances are. But the general idea of it is that there's a, there are tabs for each of those three time frames that I talked about, you know, now, mm-hmm. later, and, you know, the ultimate return to school. Um, and then on top of that, there's a sort of a top sheet which pulls information up out of all three of those different time frames so you can see it on the same page. It takes a lot of space to answer all these things, and so it's tricky. Yeah. That's, that's been one of the biggest problems. There's so many factors that it's hard to use, but I think, knock on wood, I think we've got it, and I do hope that it will be useful. So we should have that available, you know, not too long, and hopefully people will find it useful. All right, great. Well, I look forward to that and we'll get it up on the website and we will be sure to announce it far and wide. And for anybody that's looking for more information, Paul's done another podcast with us, like I mentioned a few weeks ago. He's done numerous blog updates related to COVID-19 and its impact in a variety of areas from charter schools to special education. So as He mentioned his colleague dealing with student discipline, and uh, we have other education colleagues in Massachusetts and Rhode Island that have also spoken and written extensive pieces to help schools navigate through this time. So please check out our website at www.bglaw.com. And we also disseminate that information on all of our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter if you just search Barton Gilman. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you and your family are doing well, and I just wish you to be safe and healthy. Thank you very much, and obviously same to you. And uh, if anybody has any questions about this or wants to talk to me about this, I should be pretty easy to find through the website. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Bye. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, 
the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.